Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On last week's episode of Ratfucker, our investigation took a weird turn. We started off by digging into dirty tricks in the world of conservative politics. But they tell you that you got to go where the story takes you. And the story of political fixer David Wallace somehow took us to the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Today, on the conclusion to Ratfucker, we come full circle and find out what this small, secretive religious sect has to do with conservative politics in Canada. And to do that, we're going to need to get to the bottom of the Klondike Papers conspiracy theory. It has everything that you would expect from an internet conspiracy theory. Allegations of secret political overlords, allegation of a child abuse ring, allegations of assassination plots and schemes for global control. But it differs from other internet conspiracy theories in that this one was spread by the political left. We're going to find out if any of it is true. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Philip Tomback, Skylar Freeman, Amber Rohal, Mikolas Skilanzunas, Andrew Rampton, John Lorenzik, Joy Liu, and William. I'm William. I work in not-for-profit housing in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I've supported Canada Land for many years now because I realized I was getting most of my news from down south, and it gives me a much better sense of what's going on in Canada and about a lot of issues that I've come to understand better. Listen, I have some issues to work through. Um... I take crowdfunding way too personally. I think it goes back to the beginning of Canada Land. The first time that I turned to the audience and I said, hey, you like this podcast? Um, maybe, maybe you could pay something so I could keep doing it. It was very personal. It was very much that I had like basically burned all of my bridges within journalism by launching Canada Land. And my only hope was that people would pay for the podcast. And the podcast was like quickly becoming clear to me that it was my dream job to report on the media and talk about it on this show. So I had a lot on the line when I first turned to you and said, um, maybe a few bucks a month and we can keep going. And at that time, it was also like a very weird thing to ask for. There was not a lot of paid digital creation happening for, for most people listening. I was the first person to ever ask them to do something like that. And so I felt sheepish about it. And I felt like, uh, it's all or nothing here. I got everything riding on this. And in the years since then, everything has changed. 
everything. I mean, first of all, it's it's now understood and commonplace that you're going to have to pay for the content that you want to support if you want it to exist. But it's also like this isn't about me and whether I get to do my – I mean, it sort of is. Like, I, I kind of feel like every year that I'm almost like a politician who has to run for re-election every year and that I could get booted out of office every year, which is maybe a healthy thing, like if elections keep politicians honest, a yearly election. Um, but it's not It's not about whether I get to – I mean, at this point, it's about the health and sustainability of this whole operation. But it still feels like an article of faith because our model hasn't changed much. And I like the way that we built it. The model is like we don't bother you for the other 11 months. And that's so that we can focus on the work. We're not always bugging you for money. We don't want to always be thinking, will this story convince people to support us? It's set up in such a way that my colleagues and I can really focus on the journalism with just a little mention each episode that if you want to support us, here's how to do it. And we don't really hit you up hard until this month, crowdfunding month. And that's a lot of faith on our part that like you'll remember the work once it's time for us to ask you to chip in for it. So I always kind of clench my teeth uh, whether it's going to work or not. And then it starts working. And um, we have welcomed over uh, a thousand new supporters so far, this crowdfunder. That is amazing. But we need a lot more to hit our goals. And what I want to talk to you today is just more about how, yeah, it's got very little to do with me or what you think about me or whether I get to – no, like when I think about what we've provided – over the last 12 months and the work that we're asking you to support, it is about my colleagues and the work that they have been contributing. And it's pretty damn impressive uh, just how much and, and, and the kind of work and the variety of it. When we talk about Sharice's contributions to the show over the last 12 months, like my mind immediately goes to the story that she first brought us on uh, medically assisted dying. I did not know about that topic in anything but the most vague way before Sharice brought to my attention that there is this issue where we're actually making it like cheaper for people to die than to live. And that is a story that I have seen picked up again and again and grow across this country since she first reported on it. And I've even heard journalists say like, this is going to be the thing that Canada is issuing an apology for in 20 years. This is some kind of modern eugenics where we do not provide a social safety net. There are people who want to live, but they don't have a quality of life with dignity. And we're giving them this other option now. And for prisoners and for people with chronic but treatable illnesses, uh, medically assisted dying has this whole other human rights dimension. Sharice is the reporter who put me onto that. Maybe she's the person who first alerted you to that as well. She's done a ton of other great reporting, including unionization efforts at retail outlets. And she's an interesting reporter who looks at things through a different lens and looking at fake news through the economic engine, the online ads that fuel fake news. She's done so much great reporting. Emily Nicola talking about the use of the N-word in Quebec and bringing us into a different context and a different language and how it is different, really taking us inside of the context and the nuances of language and, and race and language in Quebec. That's something that you heard on Canada Land and nowhere else. Sarah Larniuk brought so many 
incredible reports, reporting on this cluster of illnesses out of New Brunswick, which she will be following up on, these mystery illnesses out of New Brunswick and the possibility of a cover-up of what's actually going on there. We'll have more for you from Sarah on that soon. But she brought so much environmental coverage, climate coverage to this show, looking at wildfires and the communities affected by them, looking at flooding, looking at nuclear waste disposal, strange stories, a story about a fraudulent botanist, a history of the abortion rights struggle in Canada, a report on divorce in Canada. Just such a curious reporter who brought such a variety of stories. We sent reporter Brandy Marin to Coast Salish territory to give you a report on the orcas and their relationship with the Salish people. There were a bunch of group effort episodes where my colleagues and I kind of each contributed a little bit to an episode looking at the Rogers family when they were going through their dynastic clash and upheaval of that company, looking at the whole history of Rogers, and we each bit off a different chunk of it. And another episode where we each reached out to a different supporter of the Freedom Convoy, and it was so difficult because there were opinions that were so different about whether we should even be talking to these people or platforming them, but we all decided decided to be guided by our curiosity, which is what I think should fuel us, and talk to these people first and then come back and talk about what is ethical and journalistically sound to report. And we came up with an episode that I think got further into it than what you were hearing elsewhere. Not a defense of these people, not a condemnation, but an attempt to understand what the hell was going on by talking to human beings. That was a joint effort with my colleagues. Jonathan Goldsby looking at... Groundhog Day with a incisive, investigative mind. We benefit so much when our colleagues bring topics that they are passionate and knowledgeable about and then like present them to you. Our audio editor, Tristan Capicione, his first report for this show was a look at urban design and uh, he entered the term strodes into my mind and my vocabulary. I didn't know anything about that before. So what I'm asking you to contribute to is, is all of that work and everything like it that we're gonna do in the year ahead. We really had an ambition in the last 12 months to expand this show into the best news magazine in Canada. And I, I, I think that if we're not there already, we're well on our way. And the way we did it was with the contributions we got last year at crowdfunding time. So here I am asking you to fuel the next 12 months of reports of things you don't know about yet, but which we're going to go and find out about and investigate and travel there when we need to and tell you all about it. And when you become a supporter, you're going to get a lot of stuff, including bonus content. Uh, there are two extra episodes of Ratfucker, bonus content episodes that are, I think, every bit as compelling as the three episodes on our main feed. But you also get invitations to live events and virtual events. You get a subscription to our new exclusive duly noted email newsletter. You get early releases of future shows, bonus episodes of future shows. You get discounts in our store. We just launched a store, by the way. There are new socks, new shirts, new designs, a limited edition, duly toted tote bag. Don't blame me. Somebody else thought of that. That's kind of cute. As a supporter, you get a discount of 20% off of everything and anything in our store, plus early access to merch that nobody else gets. And every time you do make a purchase in the store, that purchase also lends support to the group JHR, Journalists for Human Rights. Listen, it can happen. We might reach our targets and do the things we want to do this year, but it will take sustained momentum. It will take you, the person listening now who hasn't signed up yet, but was kind of sort of thinking about it. 
It's going to take you going to canadaland.com slash join or clicking the link in your show notes and supporting the stuff that we're doing. Thank you. I hope all these rotten sons of bitches go down. I really do. In our last episode, you heard the story of how Dirty Tricks operative David Wallace did the unthinkable. He gave the guy he was paid to track down his cell phones, his email login information, and permission to release his files publicly. But Richard Marsh didn't just dump the data and hope for somebody to find it. He shared the full files to a handful of journalists he established contact with, including us. He strategically leaked screenshots and tidbits, drop by drop, on Twitter using the same brand name he gave to the files themselves, the Klondike Papers. The account promised the public shocking revelations and juicy secrets. It worked. The Klondike Papers went viral, and nothing about it got more attention than an alleged Zoom call. The conversation itself, as far as we know, was not recorded. The only evidence of it in the Klondike papers is an email thread with a meeting invite. And it was scheduled for a Sunday afternoon in January 2021. The point of the call, according to the emails, was to discuss the hunt for Richard Marsh. Four men were on the email chain. Rod Diplock of San Francisco, a registered director of the Plymouth Brethren Church. Brad Mitchell, a Brethren leader and founder of the Vancouver company Klondike Lubricants. Gerald Shapur, the Brethren's longtime Calgary lawyer. And David Wallace, ratfucker. David Wallace says he remembers it well. His account of it is corroborated by his associate, Nathan Jacobson, who says he was also on the call. Who is Jacobson? We'll get into that. But for now, just know that according to a profile of him in the National Observer, he's a businessman, a pal of Vladimir Putin, and a Mossad operative. According to Wallace and Jacobson, the call began with a discussion about Richard Marsh and how to find him. But then, they say, it took a surprising turn. They had me on a call with two senior uh, brethren, and basically they asked what it would take for me to get rid of Trudeau. And I said, well, what are you talking about? They said, whatever it takes. And who said that, whatever it takes? Who, who used that wording? A fellow from the state who's a senior member of the brethren, I think the last name was Diplock or something like that. Rod Diplock. Yeah. How would it look if you were to put together a plan to remove the prime minister? And when a person says to me, whatever it takes, and they believe that I have a, a background in certain intelligence agencies known for doing things, uh, one can interpret it as they're taking it to the extreme. But in Nathan's defense, if you say to a guy like that, whatever it takes, I mean, he's going to have a different understanding. There's been articles come out about my being an Israeli assassin or whatever. And 
they believed that they had people that were willing to do things for money. And it was a matter of name the price to get rid of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, whatever it takes. I don't believe that they were talking about murder. See, he never said kill. And I don't honestly, me personally, I don't think he meant kill. I think they were looking for a black bag job to smear this guy that would stick. And their words again, name the price. And then as soon as he got that out of his mouth, that's when Chapur is like, guys, you're all on the call. I don't need to be here. And he ghosted right away. I basically told them what you're talking about is sedition. And I cannot be involved with anything like that. I don't know what you think I am or what I do, but what you're asking is at the extreme end of, of illegality. I mean, Diplock made this point repeatedly, that there's no more God in government, and God needs to be in government. That we are godless. And then in a later call with Shapur, I was pushing. I said, I, I'm not going to do anything against this Richard Marsh. The call ended with uh, Nathan saying, well, basically, he put the kibosh on killing. And he said, well, there are a lot of different ways to approach what you're wanting to do. He said, I certainly wouldn't jump to that one right away. And um, then it all fell apart and it all blew up. And it did. They had a half million dollar assassination contract out on Justin Trudeau. The murder for hire plot against our own prime minister of our country. Murder for hire plots. You think it can't happen? But was it true? How could that have happened on a Zoom call with people's professional accounts? Look, if, if, if what we're doing here, if you're going to investigate a conspiracy theory, you can't go into it thinking there's no way this is absurd. And you can't go into it trying to prove that it's real and looking for evidence to support that. Like, we did see evidence that these guys were working together on this Richard Marsh manhunt. So I think what we have to do now is just get into it and see what we find. I'm Sheree Sutran. I'm Jesse Brown. From Canadaland, this is the conclusion of Ratfucker. So what was actually discussed on that Zoom call? As you heard, David Wallace does have someone to corroborate his story, that the Plymouth Brethren members who hired him to hunt down Richard Marsh also inquired about taking out Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But that someone is Nathan Jacobson. Okay, let's take a minute to talk about who Nathan Jacobson is and why he might have been invited onto that Zoom call. Some basic research reveals that Jacobson is an interesting person. And over the phone, I learned that he happens to come from the same working-class Jewish neighborhood in Winnipeg where my dad was born. And I was pleased when I Googled you to find that you're a good Yiddish boy. <laughs> Well, I was born in the North End, and pretty much everybody in Winnipeg knows me. The Jewish community made me the man of the year there. As a teen, Jacobson left Winnipeg for Israel and volunteered to fight in the Yom Kippur War. He later went into business and made an outrageous fortune in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Along the way, he made connections with powerful people. I've been a friend of Putin's for 31 years. Jacobson likes to name drop the world leaders that he says he's connected to, 
But you can actually find evidence of some of these relationships online. There are photos and articles about his friendship with former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and with former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. You can find pictures of his 2007 meeting with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, in which Jacobson says he personally tried to negotiate a peace deal between Syria and Israel. Last spring, as the war intensified in Ukraine, Jacobson told me that he was thinking about taking up arms again. And I, I've had a, a sniper rifle brought to me from Israel. So I, I would like to go into the field for for a week or so. But uh, which you, you, you take a, a 67-year-old overweight uh, Jew from Winnipeg with a bad back and knees, but I'm still a hell of a shot. And you'll find very few people with the experience in urban warfare that I have. Like I said, he's an interesting person. And he's a person who, we are told, decided to help David Wallace protect Richard Marsh. I asked David Wallace, how exactly did he come to be partners with Nathan Jacobson? And I almost immediately regretted doing so. As is often the case with Wallace, a question about a detail in one story got answered with a reference to a totally different, equally elaborate story. But Nathan Jacobson is a multimillionaire. What the hell does he want to have to do with any of this? Well, it was helping me out because at the end of the day, I mean, we get this guy. It helps me. I've helped him on many jobs. I mean, uh, I helped him on the Yurkovich job here. Okay, the Yurkovich job. I was not expecting Michael Yurkovich, the Ukrainian-Calgarian green energy magnate, to make an appearance in this narrative, but here we are. Wallace says that he brought Jacobson in on a job to help Yurkovich broker an overseas energy deal. It didn't work out. And Yurkovich ended up feeling cheated by Jacobson and looking for revenge. Wallace tried to calm Yurkovich down on the phone, and he recorded the call, as he often does. Okay, listen, Michael, though, here's the thing. You've already, this guy's already harvested you. No, you're not paying him anything. Here's the thing. You've already paid him a small fortune, okay? The fact is, it's not worth destroying your company to go ballistic on this guy. There's other ways we can handle him. I'll pay you $500,000 right now if you deliver the leg and arm of Nathan Jacobson to me on Friday morning. We asked Michael Yurkovich, CEO of TIU Canada, about that call. He confirmed that's him on the recording, but he says the offer you just heard him make to Wallace was just an offhand comment, nothing more. It doesn't really have much to do with our story anyhow. I I just had to play you that tape. So let's forget about Yurkovich and talk about the other men, besides Wallace and Jacobson, who were invited to that Zoom call. How do they remember what happened? We sent questions to Rod Diplock, the man alleged to have asked what it would cost to take out Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Diplock, as mentioned, is listed as a director of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church's U.S. entity, a registered nonprofit. He's also a director of a company called Universal Business Team, a global consultancy that's listed on the Brethren Church's website as part of their network. UBT stands for Universal Business Team. UBT supports the community by providing leading-edge advice for businesses and products tailored to our beliefs as a community. 
We emailed him to let him know that he's being accused of plotting to assassinate Canada's prime minister. Is that true or is that something he'd like to clear up? No response. So we moved on to Brad Mitchell. According to Richard Marsh, Mitchell was the man who took lead on the effort to track him down. Brad Mitchell kind of headed up the the campaign. He actually sent to David Wallace my wife's itemized phone log, which, I mean, she doesn't even get an itemized phone bill, so it wasn't Mm -hmm. something he found in the garbage. According to the Klondike Papers... Brad Mitchell did indeed send Wallace a PI report on Marsh that included a list of Marsh's wife's private phone calls. Nothing that we could find out about Brad Mitchell online explained in any kind of a direct way why he would be hunting for Richard Marsh. He's the founder of a Vancouver company called Klondike Lubricants. He's also connected to Rod Diplock, as they both have leadership roles at UBT. And he's the Canadian CEO of a company called Ox Group International, a global tool business that was founded by Dean Hales, one of the sons of Bruce Hales, the global leader of the Plymouth Brethren. As you'll remember, the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church calls itself nonpartisan and its members do not vote. But Brad Mitchell seems to have an interest in politics. There's a photo of Brad Mitchell sitting with other prominent Brethren members in the front row at Prime Minister Stephen Harper's 2011 victory speech. Now, since Brad Mitchell is a Canadian, we thought that he might be eager to tell us if he was, in fact, not on a Zoom call in which the assassination of his current Prime Minister was allegedly discussed. So we found Brad Mitchell's cell phone number in the Klondike papers and called him. Is this Brad Mitchell? Yes, speaking. Brad, it's Jesse Brown. I'm a reporter with Canada Land News. Uh, I'm calling because your name has come up uh, from a gentleman named David Wallace and another gentleman named Nathan Jacobson. We're working on a story about their uh, employment with Gerald Chaper. And the, they, they... Uh, I'm just in a meeting right now with someone. Um, could you bring me back another time? I'm sorry, I'm in a breakfast meeting. Oh, okay, I'd be, I'd be happy to. Is there a good time today for me to call you? Um, let me see. Just that we we have a wedding on today. Um, I'm just trying to think. Maybe give me a call on Thursday. On Thursday. I will call you yeah. then. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. Okay, take care. I did try him on Thursday and again on Friday. Same thing, both times. You have reached Brad Mitchell's voicemail. Please leave a message at the tone, and I will respond to you as soon as possible. Thanks for calling. We sent Brad Mitchell detailed questions. He did not reply. But maybe we could get a reply from the lawyer Mitchell worked with, Gerald Shapur. So many paths in this story lead to Gerald Shapur, a little-known figure with a huge role in conservative politics. He was general counsel for the Conservative Party of Canada and the lawyer for its leader, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Ezra Levant, publisher of the extreme right-wing rebel news, was once a partner at Shapur's law firm. What's interesting is the Brethren have, for years, used as their lawyer in North America a gentleman in Alberta, Calgary, very well-regarded lawyer named Jerry Shapur. Once again, journalist Marcy McDonald. 
author of The Armageddon Factor, The Rise of Christian Nationalism in Canada. She's been keeping track of Shapur's activity within the conservative Christian community for years. And he was the lawyer for the Reform Party, the Alliance Party. And when Harper took over the Alliance Party as leader and transformed it into the Conservative Party of Canada as we know it, Jerry Shapur was one of the first lawyers. And he has been a huge Harper supporter when Harper was up for election, the very first time it was Jerry Shapur that said, don't boast about how good Harper would be or what you know about him or how he'd carry out the conservative agenda because the Canadian media will leap upon it and you'll blow his chances. He'll be seen as a pawn of the American right. Is Jerry Shapur brethren? No, no. Why he's interested in the brethren cause is that Jerry Shapur himself has become a a specialist as a lawyer in religious freedom issues because he's a Seventh-day Adventist. So he has become a champion of religious rights and has often um, appeared before Canadian human rights councils. Gerald Shapur rarely appears in the media, but when he has, he's been blunt about his political philosophy. Big government is evil because government uses force. And so since government is an evil, but necessary evil, and we have to accept that, let's keep it very small in case it gets out of hand and we have to kill it. In the Klondike Papers, Joel Shapur appears to coordinate the hunt for Richard Marsh, connecting Mitchell and Diplock with David Wallace and bringing Wallace up to speed on how the search had gone in the past. We wanted to talk to Joel Shapur. After all, we were in Calgary. So Wallace took us to him. Well, he tried. So where are we? We are at the downtown Calgary offices of Miller Thompson. This is where Gerald Chapur is a senior partner. Let's go up to Miller Thompson. Sounds like fun. Well, as it turns out, Gerald Shapur was not available. Any reply from Jerry? No, it looks like his assistant is away, and I, I was trying to reach out to his... Uh... We sent written questions to Gerald Shapur. He did not reply. We'd hit a wall. Our goal was to get the other side of the story about what was discussed on that Zoom call. But none of the other guys who were emailed invitations to it would even speak with us. Okay, but I don't actually think we hit a wall. How so? I mean, okay, look, you're never going to get anywhere with this Zoom call. I mean, even if this Zoom call happened, which we don't actually know if it did, do you think these guys are actually going to tell us that it did? If Brad Mitchell and Gerald Shapur and Rod Diplock actually conspired to assassinate Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, they wouldn't tell you. I mean, why not just deny it then, right? It's, it's not that I think that it's true. It's just that it's an easy thing to deny if it's false. So you agree, we hit a wall. Like, we didn't get anywhere with that. But we didn't. I mean, look, Jesse, it's what you said. 
If you're looking for connections in politics, there is a story here. Like, I want to know what all these guys are doing teamed up. Like, none of the companies I represent have any real conflict or issue with Richard Marsh. The company that does is completely separate and in the UK in another country. The only thing these two guys actually have in common with that other company in the UK is that they're all brethren. I'm trying to figure out who's who in this business partnership or whatever it is. That's really weird. Like, if somebody owes me money and they run off to Australia, I don't really expect to be able to call up, like, some other Jewish guy in Australia and say, hey, can you go collect that money on my behalf? You know, like, just because we're both on the same team or something? It doesn't work like that. All of these businesses are connected through this thing called UBT. It's, it links 3,000 brethren-owned businesses across the world. And if we're trying to figure out if they actually have political influence, we don't look at the church. We... We have to be looking at their businesses. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm gonna recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1, try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Journalist Emily Leadham has been reporting on the Brethren for years. She noticed a strange pattern with Brethren-owned companies in Manitoba when the COVID pandemic broke out. A few different companies had got a total of $50 million in terms of PPE contracts. And this was interesting because they are, you know, all brethren linked. We were able to also back that up through looking at, at charity data and finding that, you know, a lot of these people were listed as directors on brethren linked charities. But what was significant is that these companies all were in the same building together. Their addresses were all listed in the same building and the contracts were kind of divvied up among them. And I just looked up um, Klondike lubricants in the Ontario records. And yeah, to my surprise, they had a PPE contract with the Ontario government. Leadham found that in Ontario, the company Klondike Lubricants was awarded a $1.94 million contract to supply PPE to Doug Ford's conservative government. Now, before the pandemic, Klondike lubricants had nothing to do with face masks. They are an industrial oil company. Klondike's complete range of oils and lubricants are designed to handle the extreme climates and operating conditions that you work in every day. Klondike Lubricants is connected to another company. We also found that this other Brethren Link company called Ox Tools were some of the biggest PPE importers in Canada in 2020. Once again, 
Ox Group International's Canadian CEO is the same person who founded Klondike Lubricants, Brad Mitchell. Richard Marsh casually mentions to us that brethren-owned companies have received billions of dollars from conservative governments around the world to supply PPE, sometimes in controversial circumstances. They saw the enormous potential to leverage their political connections to get these all these emergency contracts that were being put out. So they basically contacted all the brethren businesses that were already had healthcare connections or relevant suppliers, and they frantically bought up every kind of mask and gloves, every possible thing that they could perceive would be needed in a pandemic, and stockpiled it. That's all Richard's speculation. But this next part checks out. I mean, they derive a great amount of power from their association with politicians and and a great amount of their money. I mean, they're incredibly successful financially. I mean, £2.3 billion in the UK. I mean, that was all obtained by political influence. A Times of London investigation in February 2022 revealed that over $3 billion in PPE contracts had been awarded by Boris Johnson's government to dozens of companies connected to the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. Other companies were never given a chance to bid for these contracts, and Britain's health and safety executive later declared some of the PPE to be substandard. Emily Leadham found that Brethren-connected companies in Canada got PPE contracts in Manitoba and Ontario, both provinces which have conservative governments. We know another Brethren-linked company, Tilsonburg Tube, got a grant from the Ontario government. The name Tilsonburg Tube appears in the Klondike Papers. There is a bank account by that name that is seen sending four e-transfers to David Wallace in early 2021. They total over $21,000. The company has not responded to our emails. According to former Brethren members, business is the real Brethren conspiracy. Here's a clip from a recent episode of a podcast put out by ex-Brethren members. So they have a holding corporation called Global Funding Trust. They use this term called the gap ecosystem, which basically means that we take outsiders' money and we keep it in. Then they have another one, the Universal Business Team, commonly known as UBT. And really, they use it to kind of control and buy parts of businesses so that they can actually have control in members' companies. Then they have Vision Accelerator. That is their private equity group, basically for their big VIPs to take over PBC members' businesses. The Plymouth Brethren Christian Church tells us its members' companies are under no obligation to join UBT. They are able to do business with whomever they choose, they say. They also tell us that the church has no legal, financial, or any other interest in its members' businesses. And perhaps that's true if we just define the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church as a series of legal entities, nonprofits that are registered in different countries. But the church itself claims UBT as an official part of its global network. And UBT draws profits from thousands of brethren-owned businesses worth billions of dollars. The church calls them family businesses. One of them, Unispace, was indeed a part of a brethren family. It was owned by the son of brethren global leader Bruce Hales. It recently sold for over $250 million. Here again is Emily Leadham. My understanding is that 
it all really comes down to business more than anything else. And ex-members will say that, you know, the focus is more so on business than really anything in the Bible or anything about spirituality or religion. So if there's any kind of action or strategy that can be used to further, you know, the brethren business initiatives, then that's something that they're going to pursue. The Plymouth Brethren Christian Church denies that it is centrally organized, but its members and the companies they own do work together in a bunch of ways. McDonald wrote about these anonymous political ads that popped up in 2007 in Canadian newspapers. They ran ads that um, were definitely against same-sex marriage and wanted that issue revisited. Eventually, the Vancouver Sun got a Brethren member to admit that he was the one who placed the ads. He said that he did so on behalf of just himself and some other members. And he denied that the church was involved. Richard Marsh says he was personally involved in that campaign, back when he was still inside the Brethren. I was pulled into that. All the Brethren across Canada were pulled into basically bombing every MP with thousands and thousands and thousands of letters about gay marriage. According to its website, the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church has never made a donation to any political party. But members are not forbidden to lobby or to campaign. And $40,000 worth of attack ads against Justin Trudeau were secretly funded by a handful of Brethren members during the 2019 federal election. The ads called the Prime Minister the ultimate hypocrite and ran over the front page of the National Post and in a two-page spread in the Globe and Mail. The ads were attributed to an unknown third-party advertiser. Nobody could tell who was behind them until reporter Emily Leadham investigated and found that it was members of the Brethren. But no laws were broken, and the church says it had nothing to do with it. Ex-Brethren members say otherwise. These donations all happened within 48 hours, and seeing all these donations from individuals across the country come in within this short span of time really indicated to them that there was some level of coordination. And years later, after he was excommunicated, Marsh says powerful Brethren members coordinated efforts against him. So David Wallace was hired to find me on the premise that they wanted to serve legal documents on me because they wanted to stop me from publishing. I mean, there's an endless supply of material. Warwick Fentiman, Richard Marsh's former boss, told us in an email that the idea that he's trying to silence Marsh is completely false. He says he's simply trying to get Marsh to comply with his legal obligations. The Brethren deny that they have a formal hierarchy. However, their website lists Bruce Hales as the church's most senior leader. We asked the Brethren Church about the hunt for Richard Marsh. They told us they had nothing to do with it. These are not matters for the PBCC, they wrote. But then they continued. They wrote that they understood that a lawyer had prepared a letter for the media about the very serious UK court orders against Marsh. This letter, it turns out, has never been published anywhere. But the church happened to have a copy, which they provided to us. Whoever the client is who hired this lawyer who wrote the letter, it's never mentioned. The lawyer is Gerald Chaper. The whole organization leaks like a sieve and, you know, internal details of internal scandals find their way to me and I publish them and, you know, I'm their worst nightmare. They got so much to hide. We started off by trying to see why these guys were looking for Richard Marsh. 
And if it could possibly be true that there was a Brethren conspiracy to take down the Prime Minister. What we found instead, well, we won't call it a conspiracy. But there's evidence of connections, cooperation, and coordination on all kinds of efforts in business and in politics. So we do know that they have influence and their numbers are such that politicians pay attention to them. So it doesn't always take a conspiracy. They have made their influence felt. And I think this is the new face of the Brethren. By way of introduction, David Wallace announced himself as a con man who manipulates reporters like us for a living. And boy, did he have a story for us. So we approached him and his materials from the default position that everything he brings us might be total bullshit. But in chasing his stories, we found some shocking things. We verified a secret plot to take down the mayor of Calgary. We uncovered a loose network of interconnected players, real estate developers, industrialists, church directors, politicos, who have common interests and who collaborate and use shared resources to try and get what they want. And we found that a secretive religious sect, one that's been accused of stalking and intimidating its own former members, has its own corporate consultancy that acts as a global hub for thousands of member-owned companies, which have collectively received billions of dollars from conservative governments, and those governments have benefited from secret attack ad campaigns waged by members of that sect. And we uncovered an expensive, elaborate, international search for a whistleblower. But what we did not find is any evidence at all of the more outlandish claims that David Wallace has been spreading online. The claims that went viral. I have it on very reliable authority that Gerald Shapur and uh, Mr. Boliev are blood relatives. Guys, have you taken a look at them? I know personally that Alan Hallman was talking about uh, a march on Ottawa, not a convoy, but a march on Ottawa six months before it happened. Six months. Dark money is the money that comes in for places uh, um, like uh, all these organizations that donated money to the convoy. All of these trust accounts and this bullshit. And he's been letting loose on TikTok, where the Klondike Papers hashtag is nearing two million hits. The truth is, the whole system is broken. They lie to us constantly. These are mafia, kingpins, oligarchs, giant corporations. I say it's time to call a spade a spade. And it's time we fight these fuckers in the alleys, in the streets. Wherever they are, we are. And we take Canada back. People have been quick to believe all of it. Like this TikToker. He was one of the major promoters of Wallace's conspiracies. He ended up apologizing to his followers because he was called out for sharing misinformation. It's time to do some corrections about the Klondike Papers and some of the things that have been alleged about uh, the Klondike Papers from some individuals, including myself. When this stuff started to break and started to happen, uh, there was hours and hours of interview to go through, and uh, a lot of it is opinion. And that's a clear thing to understand as we go through this. We've used the Klondike Papers as a trove of tips, clues that in some cases led us to stories we could verify and report to you. But the rest of it, 
shocking tales of conspiracy and assassination plots? Was it all just a ploy to get everyone to pay attention? Or does Wallace actually believe it? We asked him if he's concerned at all that he's spreading a conspiracy theory. But there's no theory here. This is demonstrably true. You tell me one piece of information this QAnon bullshit actually had right and show me one news story that was demonstrably true that Q provided, and right out of the gate, I showed exactly where Russian funds were going into Ontario. I showed that his cabinet members were as dirty as they come. You tell somebody's cabinet member that their own people are under surveillance, and all they want to know is, geez, fuck, can we play too? I mean, these are real stories, real evidence. This ain't no jerk off under an initial. This is me. This is my name. This is my face. I'm not pumping bullshit. I'm giving people my documents. Read them yourself. And if you've read them, and you guys have read through them, if you don't see that there's some fucked up stuff going on in there, then you ain't looking. Richard Marsh has a different answer to that question. After all, he has been promoting the Klondike Papers from the start. I mean, you coined the phrase, the Klondike Papers, and describe the uh, associated Twitter account as like, you know, information you weren't meant to see, dirty right-wing politics, bent lawyers, crime, fraud, corruption, sex, money, <laughs> money, money. Watch this space. I think you wanted eyes on this, right? Well, of course. I mean, that was the whole essence of it, was to get eyes on it. Initially, I had no interest whatever in the political side of it. When I started to assemble the Klondike papers, all I was going to initially do was pull out all the Brethren stuff and publish that and bin the rest. And then it occurred to me that, you know, the general population of Canada has no interest in the Brethren because they'd never heard of them, but they were all interested in politics. So it was a Trojan horse. I thought, well, if I can sell this whole package on the basis of its scandalous political content, once that's rolled into the, you know, into the middle of the marketplace, then the you know, the soldiers can climb out of the horse's belly and draw attention to the general public to the evil Plymouth Brethren aspect of it. And I mean, in that respect, David's kind of overhyping of some of the claims was very successful. I mean, those million Twitter hits was based on uh, some Twitter podcasters taking David's rather gilded lily and adding various turrets and towers and extra embellishments to it and a few complete falsehoods and blasting it all over TikTok and Twitter, which did have the negative effect of giving it the, um, you know, people call it a conspiracy theory, but it, it, it sure brought it to the public's attention. And uh, I think history will remember this not for the political aspect, but for the weird, abusive cult aspect. The Klondike Papers, Richard Marsh's Trojan horse, his creation that he hoped would lead the public to the truth about the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. The release of it all led to exaggeration, conjecture, misinformation. But Marsh isn't worried. He believes the truth will prevail. After all the noise and the song has died down, the truth eventually prevails. And we have all the receipts, we have all the credits. I'm not in the least worried that the falsehoods are going to overtake the facts. I mean, the show's just beginning. 
Marsh says his greatest hope of what might come from this is by exposing the brethren, he might make it easier for people still in the church to see the truth and get out. I would certainly expect to see my children again. When? I don't know. They were in their teens when I left, and now some of them are married. I heard recently that two of my daughters were married. Apparently they've been married for a couple of years. I hadn't known about that before. I just heard that a few weeks ago. They will not be the same people that I knew. I mean, you can kill yourself by sitting and mulling over it and ruminating over it. I try to always look forward. Um, but at the same time, you you think about your children. They're, they're always your children. No, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy. I mean, I, I never dreamed it could be this good. You know, I'm not, I'm not wealthy, um, but I have enough. But I've actually got more money than Bruce Hales or his family ever will have because I've got enough and they never will have. Yeah, I mean, I live a very simple life and I've got a job I really enjoy and I've got a wife that I love dearly and I've got a child coming for Christmas and um, I couldn't ask for more. And how did all of this play out for David Wallace? When we last saw him in Calgary, he told us that all of his work in the dirty tricks business had dried up. Who wants to hire a rat fucker who then tells the world all about the nasty things that you paid him to do? He said he was running out of money and at risk of losing his home, his wife, and his kids. We talked to him about whether it was all worth it and what would come next. Where are you heading? I have no place to go. I have no money to go there. I have to be out of here. I've got nothing. I mean, I fully expect my wife and children will fly to Columbia to stay with family and I'll never see them again. That's my belief. Uh, I don't really see this ending very well for me. There's no action I can take. I'm finished. I'm destroyed. I took a stand and uh, I did the right thing and now I'm finished. And they're going to win. And my marriage is destroyed now, so it's uh, done. I mean, I failed. I failed in every conceivable way. David Wallace spent his life deceiving people. Then one day, he decided to tell the truth. And he says it ruined his life. Yeah, I was worried about Marsh and other people. Maybe I should have been worried about my own family. And I thought I was, but it's complicated. Doing the right thing isn't always the right thing. Sometimes it's just complicated. To support investigations like this and to get access to bonus episodes and updates to Ratfucker, support us at canadaland.com slash join. Ratfucker is written and reported by me, Cherie Sutran. And me, Jesse Brown. Tristan Capacione is our audio editor and sound designer. Original music by Nathan Burley. Editorial support from Sarah Larniuk. And Jesse Brown is our executive producer. You can listen to Ratfucker ad-free on Amazon Music. 
included with Prime. 